Earth, 120 million years ago. An animal steps into a swamp, sinks, and dies. For millions of years, its body lies trapped in the mud. Devoid of oxygen, the animal never truly decomposes. It is encapsulated, turned to earth, and ultimately frozen in time. Its remains stay there, sleeping with unending dreams near the border of China and North Korea, until today's guest walks by. Welcome back to the Get Lost Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sills, a travel writer with Travel Channel, National Geographic, and a couple of other places. Today's guest is an archaeologist. He is an underwater explorer, and he dabbles a little bit in paleontology. He's also a man that, for some reason or another, spent 10 months at a commando camp in the middle of the Indian Ocean. So, today we welcome... (laughs) Damien Lulu. Damien, welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, you did your research. I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, LinkedIn makes it pretty easy, but uh, I guess the first thing I want to talk to you about is uh, who you are. What is your background and what are you doing right now? Um, I am a French citizen and a U.S. resident, uh, and I, uh, I do any sorts of research that relates to to anything that can help the environment. So in this case, right now, it's underwater archaeology and climate change. Uh, and just my love nature and outdoor and anything that can take me professionally out there is, uh, is a good re- a reason good enough for me. Uh, word on the street has it that you were once a crew member of Jacques Cousteau. Is that true? That is correct. Um, yes, it's one of my uh, few wonderful uh, pleasure in life is that I had a chance of coming across Jacques Cousteau when I was 17, and uh, a few years later, he offered me a, a spot on board Calypso in Vietnam and in Singapore, and then I, I joined the, the last expedition in uh, in South Africa and in Namibia in 95-96. So you were on his very last expedition? Yes, he passed away right after that in 97, unfortunately, so that was the, the very last official expedition, yes. This is, uh, it's not an episode specifically about Cousteau, but I think uh, people would want to know, like, what are, what are your memories of Cousteau? What did you think of the man himself? There was something quite extraordinary with him that you don't find very often nowadays, is that he used to listen to everyone's advice before making his own decision. And he, even myself, I mean, I was, I was nothing compared to the rest of the team. I was 
you know, they were all 20 years older than, than I was. I didn't know anything compared to, to, to them. And yet Jacques Cousteau would always come even to me, ask me, Hey, Lulu, what do you think of this? And even if he would not follow my advice, it still would ask, which gives you, you know, not, not pride, but it gives you a, a strength in the job that you're doing. And, and it makes you believe in your leader. Whereas nowadays it doesn't look like many leaders ask people what they think before taking action. Uh, that, that's a very good point. Do you feel like your time on Calypso helped sort of reinforce your connection to the environment and your focus for the rest of your career? I always had a, a special relationship with the environment, like some of my oldest memory were, you know, in the water looking for turtles and fish and salamanders. Uh, so I, I've always had that special connection. It never went away, but being with Jacques Cousteau was definitely something that reinforced my my understanding and knowledge of it, yes. Uh, yeah, so I have to ask you because I think people will want to know. There is a uh, Wes Anderson movie starring Bill Murray. It's called The Life Aquatic, and it's <laughs> <laughs> it's very, very heavily based upon Cousteau, allegedly. How accurate is that film? Uh, I have to admit that I, uh, I I went to the movies to see it, and I was the only one in the uh, entire theater who laughed as much simply because I knew Jacques Cousteau's private life. I knew his family. I, I knew the complexity behind the man and all the stories. And I can tell you it was pretty close to reality, uh, <laughs> sometimes slightly exaggerated, but it was very close to reality. So so did you have dolphins uh, swimming around with cameras? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, okay. So bear with us, everybody. We had some technical difficulties at the beginning of this interview. I just want you to be aware that we're going to plug Damien back in real quick. And you're going to notice a slight change in sound because we had to go from our normal recording format over to uh, Skype, which isn't quite as good as what we normally use. Hang tight. Cool. Okay. So where were we? We were talking, uh, we were talking about the life aquatic and you were saying that it's pretty close to reality, more or less. Yes. <laughs> okay. Except uh, I assume you weren't like pirating other uh, scientists' research equipment. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, sometimes the, the, the best love are about reality, just slightly exaggerated. So I'll, I'll leave it there to keep, uh, uh, Jacusto's memory into the the good side of things. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so that's all like in the '90s, um, and I want to talk to you today about uh, a part of your life that happened, geez, 10, 15 years after that. Uh, and around 2006, after bouncing around the world and and having unlimited adventures, you end up in China, and you're going to a province that's north of Beijing. Uh, to do some paleontology work from what I understand. Do you want to take people to that province? It's Liaoning, is that correct? Yes, it's, uh, it's called Liaoning. Um, it's not very well known except for its coal mining and pharmaceutical activities, so not very attractive to tourism or for certain type of scientists, or at least environmentalists. Uh, but something quite extraordinary happened with China in the, in the 90s is that the world realized, at least the scientific world, that there had not been much uh, paleontological research done in China uh, right. or, or archaeological for the matter, just uh, a, a little bit starting in the 70s. 
and of course with the, uh, the terracotta warrior discovery in early 70s but in paleontology there really had not been much uh, for various political reasons um, but it, it clearly started in the 90s and in the early 2000s with uh, very rare discoveries for example the oldest flower ever found was in Liaoni. Uh, the it's, it was called the Archaeofructus. Okay. Uh, and how uh, old is that flower? So you're looking at from 140 to 100 million years old, and the ones that we used to find were about 125 million years old. My God. So during the, the Cretaceous time. Okay, so you're going over there and you're drawn in by this flower, is that correct? Yeah, we can say it that way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Something very exciting as well, it's also the place where uh, it was proved for the first time that we had a direct link between dinosaurs and birds by finding dinosaurs with, with feathers. And uh, the Chinese scientists and, uh, and uh, European and Northern American scientists as well were on the sites uh, discovering one after the other fossils with, with feathers. Right, so you're the guy uh, that sort of broke down the stereotype of, of dinosaurs, or you're one of the people. Uh, as a kid, you know, I grew up, I'm a kid of the 90s, so Jurassic Park was it, you know? Like these big lizard-like <laughs> raptors running around kitchens. Um, I still get freaked out around, like, you know, steel appliances, because I think there's a velociraptor. <laughs> but your team helped unravel the mystery that said, hey, no, they were really, really very closely related to birds, or they were birds? Yes, they were not specifically our team, but they were definitely colleagues. Uh, when we arrived, all this had already been discovered, but our chance was that my, uh, my boss at the time, I had a wonderful boss named Dr. Paul, he was given a chance by the Chinese government to, to have a, a vast amount of land uh, outside a, a small town called Yixian in Liaoning, and with this land, he had the task to start a museum, a couple of queries, and uh, basically start international research on a rare Chinese paleontological site. So this is the area, the region where the feathered dinosaurs had been found, where the Archaeofructus, the oldest flowers, had been found. And this is also uh, pretty exciting for a small dinosaur called uh, Psittacosaurus, which was the ancestor of the famous American Triceratops. Oh, so, one of my favorites. Yeah, and, and the Chinese were very happy. Can you imagine? They found the ancestor of the Triceratops, who was Chinese. So it was, a, it was quite a, a happy discovery at the time. <laughs> so is the theory with that specific dinosaur that because the continents were connected, um, they were able to uh, evolve into a larger Triceratops? Or was it a time where... The continents were actually like more of one big giant piece. So, you you partially right in what you just said. Um, in much more ancient time, especially at the time of the Pangaea and, and afterwards during the the Triassic and the Jurassic, you had a certain type of dinosaurs that were very common. Uh, they were herbivores. And they were duckbill dinosaurs, uh, hadrosaur, and those ones today you find them all over the world, from Belgium to Antarctica because at the time the continents were connected. Okay. During the Cretaceous, which is the time we did our, our research from in, uh, in Liaoning, continents were already separated, so the, the link between the Triceratops and the Psittacosaurus is that the Psittacosaurus originated in China, made its way through what is today um, Russia and, uh, and Alaska, 
and then evolved into a triceratops in North America. But the, the continent were only linked to the north uh, around the Bering, the Bering Strait. Okay, so the land bridge that, uh, that people crossed as well much, much, much later on. Much later, yes. Okay. Uh, to give you guys a visual, uh, I know that we're talking about digging in the ground right now, so it's easy to just imagine a sort of hole full of dirt. But especially for the American listeners, if you think of the Grand Canyon and you think about all of the many, many colors and layers that you see in that canyon, sort of on the sides of the wall, um, the Cretaceous period is hundreds and hundreds of feet down in the Grand Canyon, I think. Is that correct? It's possible. I'm, I'm not knowledgeable enough with the Grand Canyon. All I know is that the, the, the part of, uh, of science you're talking about, stratigraphy, is definitely very appealing to, to geologists and, and paleontologists and archaeologists because, yes, it gives you an idea of the time at which uh, you, you, you're working on. So you could look at the site. I, I don't necessarily remember about the Grand Canyon, but I remember driving through Wyoming once, and on the side of the cliff, you had this extraordinary line, stratigraphic line, yeah. telling you with little dinosaurs drawn, um, you know, artistically put next to it to show yeah. you where they lived in the, at the time of the cliff. So, yes, you, you do see the, uh, the oldest and the, the, the newest, depending on where you are on the cliff. That landscape is, is so cool, and I'm sure we'll get some geologists that, that email me and say, hey, you're... <laughs> You're an idiot. Like, well, no, no, I'm a travel writer. Like, <laughs> Just I can, blame it on me. <laughs> I can tell you where to hike in the Grand Canyon, very specifically. <laughs> it's the loose fall, always. Uh, well, listen, I want to ask you to do something for our listeners. I want you to actually take them from the airport in Beijing on a, on a journey to a dig site and tell them what it's like. What do you see and hear and feel when you're at uh, a site digging for fossils um first of all there's a lot of paperwork so i suppose your question does not involve the paperwork behind all this but let's just say it's easy and we already have all the paperwork in order once you get to beijing there's a a, a long row of trees that basically take you through a train or taxi to the train station and from there you're three hours ride away to liaoni uh, and, and that's the countryside. I mean, despite the amount of people that live, like the, the main city has 8 million people, uh, which is quite a lot for a town that no one has heard of. Uh, I'll say. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, just the, the, the town that we lived by and the village, the town had 400,000 people and the village 90,000. So that gives you a, an idea, a different perspective. 90,000 person village. Yes. <laughs> But the, the best way to get there is by car because you cross the Great Wall of China as you go to Liaoning. And that's a very pleasant site, for, especially for foreigners, to, uh, to be able to go through the Great Wall to, in order to get to the northern part of China. Yeah, that's extraordinary to think about just the visuals involved in that sort of thing. Uh, what was your thought process when you took that journey for the first time? The first time my boss was very kind, he drove through um, the ocean. There's a part of, of land that gets close to the water, which is um, relatively close to North Korea as well, on the other side of the bay. And this part is, the, is seen as the tail of the, of the dragon of the Great Wall. It was a very humbling moment. Um, 
And as it turned out, because I stayed there for almost a decade, I spent many more time on the Great Wall, exploring, hiking, spending night with my tent on the, on the Great Wall. So the first moment was very, um, very um, emotional because I'd learned a lot about Chinese history. I wanted that moment, but because it was a touristic site by the water, it didn't do as much to me as much later when I would spend days and nights on the Great Wall on my own hiking path that, you know, had not been renovated since the last dynasty. Oh, you're creating new episodes of this podcast okay. every <laughs> few minutes, you see. <laughs> so that's a beautiful visual. Um, while we can't talk about that in this episode, we're going to talk about the dig sites and, and how you got up there. So sure. now I'm, I'm already enchanted. So <laughs> okay, <laughs> so back continue. to paleontology. Um, so once you get there, you imagine a countryside where depending on where you're walking uh, in the countryside, you literally step on fossils. There are, I remember, sites where we would walk on the, on the little pathway where I, I was telling people to be careful because they were stepping on 124 million years old fish uh, and, and people didn't care because they said, oh, we have so many, we have 10,000 of those, we, we, don't, we don't care about those. And so every single one wow. of them is important, but yeah, for them, the most important were the, the dragons, were the the dinosaurs and not necessarily the fish. But um, yeah, that gives you an idea of how many they were. Uh, it's a very rich fossil bed. So let, let me bring you back to the Cretaceous. Okay. Imagine that you have a swamp area where everything that lives there, once it dies, imagine that it falls in the water, gets buried into the mud and turns into a fossil because that's the key for life to turn into fossil is to be completely deprived of oxygen. And, and that's an interesting uh, situation because, you know, oxygen is part of what makes us live in the air. But once you die, this is what will destroy you. So if you ever want to turn into a fossil, you have two ways. Either <laughs> to be completely covered with volcanic ashes, like in Pompeii. Yeah. Or, and that's pretty instant, it's very efficient. Uh, and or you submerge yourself completely into mud, which is an environment that has hardly any oxygen into it. And then within uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of millions of years, you turn it to a hard rock fossil. Wow, so it's, it's almost a visual like that uh, Han Solo in Star Wars, when he's frozen in carbonite. Yeah, <laughs> I thought you mentioned the part where he falls with his uh, aircraft into the, the swamp area and turns out. <laughs> Oh, yeah, D Dagobah. I'm not a nerd. I don't know anything about that. Um, <laughs> but, but that gives you an idea why this place is so rich in fossils. It's because between the volcanic activity and the swamp and the mud area, uh, many animals and plants would turn into fossils. So that's why nowadays when you walk in places in Liaoning, it, it turns out you could find dozens of fossils in only one day of search. Wow. And so as an archaeologist, this must be just a... Uh, unfathomable gold mine for you. That's correct. Uh, however, for the audience, it's important to notice the difference between paleontology and archaeology. That's uh, true. Because to, to me, it's very similar because you are looking at old uh, artifacts and an old life turned into print or fossils. 
and you have to protect them, you have to tell their story, you have to put them in a museum or in a university for research. So archaeology and paleontology like these are very similar. But in reality, paleontology is Jurassic Park and archaeology is Indiana Jones. So you, you That's deal a good way to describe it. You deal in paleontology with ancient life before human, and in archaeology you deal with everything that has to do with human life in the past. Uh, and so I, yes, I am an archaeologist, but I was working in China in paleontology. So, um, but yeah, I just wanted to make a little difference. Uh, I think that's a really good point um, because you, uh, do you find that there are a lot of archaeologists and paleontologists that cross platforms, or are they just a few people that dabble in both? I like to believe so, but I'm pretty sure I'm wrong yeah. um, because scientists in general like to be very specific on one topic. And, and that's why I'll never be a great scientist because I love to learn about everything. Uh, but I, I'll never be really good at one thing. I just know a few things and that's what I like about life. And I, I'll never be able to study the, you know, the surveys of the quaternary time uh, in one specific geographical zone because I'm interested in all forms of life. Uh, so there's a place for generalists though for sure yes yeah. <laughs> so tell me about the first fossil that you find in Liaoning do you remember that day yes very specifically it was a, a lycoptera a, a very small fish from a hundred and twenty some million years old and uh, and that was very special because a few people had walked before me passing by a stone that I could see from a distance. And I picked it up. I opened it with a Swiss army knife that my grandfather had given me many years ago. And there was this window on the past, uh, a fish that literally had not seen the day of light for 120 million years. So that wow. was very special to me. That is cool. But your, your granddad was there in spirit. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> but if you don't mind, I'd like to add one more uh, one more experience that I've had, even though it was not the first one. Um, we had a query in the, in the museum. We had a couple of queries, but one of them would sometimes give us a, a specific type of fish called a sturgeon fish. Right. And when we um, started this museum with my boss, I, I asked him if it was okay to turn this place into a, a protected zone, a sort of a environmental park where we would plant trees, we would have a lake, we would have a reintroduction of certain species. And as such, we uh, reintroduced sturgeon fish, which had long gone disappeared from, from that part of China because of pollution, because of overfishing. For, for many reasons, there were no more sturgeon fish in China. So we reintroduced those sturgeon fish to our lake, where they lived very happily for many years, and hopefully still to this day. But sometimes we would find a sturgeon fish from the quarry that was from Cretaceous time. And in order to carry it to the lab, you had to walk by the, the lake. And I specifically remember once when I was carrying the precious uh, million years old fossil of, uh, not fossil, but print of the, the sturgeon fish in my hand. And next to me in the lake was a swimming uh, sturgeon fish. And that uh, I actually took a picture of that moment. So that was very special for me. <laughs> I, I think that's awesome. Um, I wanted to ask you, but because we kind of hit on this in pre-show, uh, we talked a little about the industrialization of the area that you're working in. 
Was it a unique thing to be able to reserve a section of that land uh, and set that back aside for nature? Yes, it was very unique. Uh, it was not intended originally. Um, it happened because of the combination of will between uh, my boss and, and myself and the team where in order to do research on quite sensitive topic, I mean, I know it doesn't look, feel or doesn't look like much in, in our countries to research fossils, but in China, it's a very strict, very highly regulated uh, research that could land you in jail if you don't have the proper authorizations. So simply because farmers, um, if they find, for example, a... Um, uh, Confucius ornus, uh, ornis, which is a type of bird from the Cretaceous time, if they are to find one and sell it on the black market, that would be the equivalent of one year of salary as a farmer. Oh, wow. So, so you understand it's very attractive for farmers on their own land to look for fossils and sell it on the black market. But it's very illegal. So in order to protect our land and our quarry, um, I also asked at the time my boss if we could um, do a sort of protective park where not just protect the land uh, with, uh, with surrounding walls, but literally create a forest uh, and, and see where it goes. And, uh, and it makes me very happy because nowadays when I look at satellite pictures, you see nothing but green on that site. And, uh, and local people, local Chinese people now call it the forest, even though the land is completely deprived of, of anything outside of that place. So what Damien is talking about is the Liaoning Fossil and Geology Park, I think, yeah? Yes, that's correct. Um, uh, I presume if you Google it, it, it will pop up. And I want to ask you about that land specifically. What kind of challenges did you face when you reintroduced um, wild plants and wildlife and fish, for instance, to that type of land? Well. I have to admit that the very first day I was there, when my, my uh, boss at the time took me there, um, I didn't know anything about this area. This was my first time in uh, this part of China. And for someone who loves nature as much as I do, you, you have to imagine I was literally crawling on the ground trying to look for life. Um, I could not find spiders, couldn't find ants, worms, snails. I would look in the, in the sky and I could not hear or see birds. I'd never seen anything like that. Um, in that's fact, so eerie. Yeah, <laughs> I, I could only imagine that that's what you'd come across on the moon. And the reason it's because of uh, the overuse of chemical pesticides and fertilizers for many, many years. I mean, these chemicals, many of which are petroleum-based, they make farmer believes that um, they control the land and their immediate environment, but in reality they don't. They just impoverish the land, they kill the land and everything that goes with it, including themselves. So over time, the entire land and its surrounding waterways were completely deprived of life, and that's when we came in, and that's where we witnessed the place where the dinosaur, the original dinosaur, had been found, and the Chinese government wanted us to start a museum and a research site. I was completely lifeless. It, I, I, I really, I know I, I've said it, but I'd never seen anything like that. It was a big shock. And that's when I really pushed to make sure that we would plant trees and, and bring water to what used to be a, a luxurious forest and swamp area. And when my boss agreed, that's when we, uh, we had a, a joint agreement with the Chinese government. I was worried that uh, local farmers would be tempted to cut down trees, for example, once they would grow, just because that's something that they do. 
I was worried that they would be too tempted to collect some of our now wildlife and, and eat them, because that's what they do. But the locals were very uh, understanding of the site, uh, very respectful. And within years, we had far more success than failure with this park by seeing species even farmers, local farmers, had not seen for generations, like hedgehogs or rabbits. Um, uh, by the time I left, we had over 17 species of birds nesting in the park. Really? And, so did you have to reintroduce them on your own, like a hedgehog and a rabbit, or they just sort of turn up after you uh, plant things? They all turn up except for fish and uh, except for fish that we introduced to the lake, and except for uh, salamanders that we breed inside the museum in an aquarium and released in the lake. Every single other species, including shrimps, came with the plants. Uh, and the birds, the hedgehog, they, they all came out of nowhere. It was pretty amazing. How does a shrimp come along with a plant? Uh, they, they, were, they were aquatic plants. They must have come like they must have been eggs with the plants or something like that. But it made me very happy because that was another uh, species we'd find in the quarry were uh, Cretaceous time shrimps that were now in the lake as well. So what I'm imagining in my mind is sort of a, a modern day take on Jurassic Park in, in one way. Um, you have this sort of barren landscape and it's filled with fossils. Um, and in my mind, it's like a return to the desert in Utah and you know people are walking around with claws and you know showing them each other. It's probably not, tr not true. <laughs> <laughs> also, most uh, most paleontologists wear t-shirts, not uh, not like field gear with a million pockets on it. And... That's right. <laughs> Though I did have the pockets. <laughs> you got to at some point, and also you have to have the the cool hat. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what's cool about this is, in my mind, I'm imagining this landscape, and you guys take this, and you actually work with the local community and say, hey, we want to do this project. We want to revitalize this area. Um, and all of a sudden, you're taking this fossil that you held in your hand, the sturgeon, and you're walking back to this habitat where you're breeding the salamanders that ultimately will go in, into the area as well. But beside you, you know, you see the fins of a, of a living sturgeon, a living fossil. And I think for those of you listening that are able to, if you have not seen a sturgeon and you don't know what they are, they're, they're a fish that you do find in North America. Um, they're, they're very old and can grow very, very large here. I don't know how, how big they get in Asia, but here it's six, eight feet is not uncommon. Yes. Um, but they're just these big, gray, almost shark-like fish that are super docile, super tame, and they're really a prize for um, anglers in Montana that go out with, with flies and try to catch one. Um, they're not super, super easy to catch, but they are very vulnerable to modern predators and invasive species and things. So it sounds like you did a great thing in giving these fish back some of the habitat they had millions of years ago. Um, I like to believe so. I um you know, I, I just try to, to fix what had been taken before by my own species. So, but the, the other thing on, on top of pollution is also the fact that, you know, the uh, sturgeon fish get caviar. 
So that's one of the reasons why humans really like sturgeon fish. So, uh, but I forgot about that. But yeah, <laughs> I, I'm not a big caviar guy. Are you? No, no, I, no, I prefer to see little fish alive and to eat their eggs. But no, um, I did eat fish heads one time. I was in the Gulf of Mexico uh, fishing with some friends in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it's like really desolate part of the coast, not at all where tourists go. And we, we caught sea trout and for one reason or another, this is horrible, but we were going to cook them anyway. And, and the, the friend I was with said, Hey, you know, you're supposed to eat like the eggs, like right <laughs> when you catch them. Uh, and I fell for it. I don't think I want to do that. Yet. <laughs> at least you had your experience. Yeah, right. It's it's not my favorite. And what kind of explorer would I be if I didn't try something at least once? Exactly. <laughs> uh, so, Damien, I want to thank you for, for coming on the show today. Um, but I'd okay. like to, before we, before we wrap up, I'd like you to walk through uh, one more final impression at at the geologic park um, in, in Laoning. You said that the park is really not that far from North Korea. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. So did you have any experiences in or around the border that were uh, interesting or worth note? Well, we, we did have a, a very strong experience. I don't know if you remember, and I, I don't remember the exact year, but it was somewhere around 2008, 9, 10. There was a massive nuclear explosion just by the border within North Korea. Wow, I don't think I remember this. And uh, and the 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 the, the clouds from that explosion, uh, of course, went directly on our way, and we were immediately told to buy as much tape as we could and tape ourselves inside the museum. No uh, way. So so of course you live in countries that are pretty strict on keeping informations. You know, in in more ways than we can imagine. So we still try to manage to use VPN to learn uh, from overseas what was really going on in North Korea because we didn't know if it was an accident or if it was a nuclear test like they did a, a few for the past 10 years. So they didn't explain to you what happened? They just said, get inside? Yeah, just said, you know, protect yourself. We never know. Uh, but, uh, and at the time, there were conflicting news, just like with Chernobyl, you know, when they tell you, I, I grew up in France. And at the time, the government told us that the, the nuclear cloud will not cross the border of Germany, which, of course, nuclear clouds do not know borders. Uh, and in China, it was a little bit the same. We were told that the, 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 the cloud, would, would, the wind, would take the uh, nuclear um, fallout onto the, uh, Japan rather than China. Right. Uh, but nevertheless, to answer your question, one of the most memorable moments of this particular time when we had to foster ourselves into the, the museum. But on, on a more positive note, if you, if you allow me one more minute. Um, our, our platform <laughs> is your platform, please. A very precious moment over there was during the winter time because it's, uh, we're not far from Siberia to the north. It gets really, really cold and you cannot do research anymore in, in, from November to February. So I would usually, uh, my boss would send me away either back to the museum in Wyoming or elsewhere. And, um, and one year, I came back earlier than expected at the end of January. It was a particularly warm winter. But the very next day when I came back, it snowed uh, about six feet of snow, nonstop wow. for several days. 
And then when it stopped, you had a clear blue sky and minus 25 degrees Celsius. So you, you're basically way below 32 Fahrenheit. And all that snow froze, and I was blocked inside the museum for over a week. <laughs> Did you have any supplies? It, it was one of the most tranquil, appreciative week of my life because I had the library filled with books. I had no one coming in or out of the museum. I was the only person. I had some supply to feed myself, of course. Uh, we even had a, a little theater inside the museum. So it was a, I, I watched a lot of movies during that week. Uh, <laughs> All right, yeah. <laughs> but I have to admit that this moment where for an entire week, there were no cars, there were no truck, no, no, nothing, basically. Um, I did not feel that until this year during the COVID-19 confinement where people would stop driving and planes would stop flying. And, and so there are moments in life like that where we are isolated and, uh, you know, it has its good and its bad, but in that case, it had a lot of good. I think that's a great point. Um, it, it is a time, at least now, that people are sort of frozen and like it or not, we're forced to reflect on a lot of things that are going on. So, yes. Well, hey, thank you so much for joining us. And I do hope um, maybe next season we can get you back to talk about your camping trips. On the great day. Sure. Great pleasure. Thank you very much for today. Thanks. Get Lost Podcast is a production of the Sold Outside Exploration Company. Follow us on Instagram at Get Lost Podcast or visit soldoutblog.com. <laughs>